Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles, your favorite true crime podcast. I am Donnie, and with me is a man that wants everyone to know that it's a nice day for a white widow, or whatever <laughs> Billy Idol said. Uh, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. I like some Billy Idol. Yeah, you got to see Billy Idol pretty good. I did. It was damn good, Not too, too long ago, wasn't it? Yeah. Me and, me, and my, me and my wife went down and checked him out. It was a damn good show. Yeah. I thought she was going to say Billy Eyelash or Whispering Billy or whatever the chick's name is. No, this is, uh, this <laughs> is the Billy real, The real stuff. Yeah, Billy Idol. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah man. Rebel Yell. What's going on, dude? Guess. Same old, same old. You're damn right. Same yeah. old, rainbow. That's exactly right. Yeah. Pretty good day today. Pretty good day today. Yeah. yeah. Got some cooler weather up here, so it's yeah. always nice. Makes you happy. Makes me very happy. Yeah. My daughter was in a pretty bad wreck the other week, but uh, she's doing really good and got some good news today, so it's a cheerful, cheerful time. It's a good day. Yeah. It scares the shit out of you when you get a call and your daughter's been in a wreck and rolled a car about four times. Yeah. She wasn't driving, so. Yeah. And it wasn't their fault either. Wasn't their fault. Some dude come across a white line and hit them head on almost and shoot them out through the field and rode the car. So. It's always good to get good news. Yeah, so extremely good news today. So, yep. Yeah. So I'm, I'm thankful. You got any uh, good shout-outs or anybody you want to mention before we get going, dude? Well, I do have a little bit of thing. It's not a five-star podcast review, but it's pretty damn close, if you guess me. Bring, bring it on. It is a friend of ours, uh, Stephen Musinski, and I hope I didn't butcher your name. He's a He joined up to the fans of the Crack House Chronicles Facebook page, and he left us a little, little note here. It says, Thank you, Crack House Chronicles. I came across your show when looking for an in-depth analysis of the Dungeons & Dragons murders. You guys have a way of being witty while remaining completely respectful to the families, and that's no—that's not so common in true crime. Well. So, pretty damn cool. Very awesome. We appreciate that, Stephen. Thanks for listening, and uh, th- thanks for joining up on the Facebook page. We appreciate it a whole bunch. Every bit of it. Dylan, I want to give a shout-out to our buddy David James. Uh, he's the Bessemer City Chief of Police. And uh, he sent me a text today, and he is a new granddad. Hey, congratulations, my friend. Congratulations. Yes. That's great news. He's uh, got a new uh, grandbaby, a baby boy. He said that uh, mom and dad is doing well, and everybody's great. Everything went great. And they're just uh, having a big time right now. Very cool, man. So Very congr- cool. Congratulations, David. I wanted yes. to yes, sir. congratulations on this uh, episode. So it happened today. Well, he sent it to me the day we're recording this, so... That way he'll know. Yeah, it won't be the day you hear it, but it'll be close. Yeah. <laughs> but we meant well. Yeah, and he's a cool guy. Very, very cool. Yeah. He's in, he's working on some stuff for us, too. He is. Super cool guy. Very cool. Very appreciative of him. Thank you for joining the family, sir. Anything, anybody else you want to mention before we get going, dude? Uh, no, I don't guess so, man. Let's just jump in here. Get right, it going. Because... Uh, in two minutes, probably up. Yeah. Well, it's actually three minutes, but here we Damn. go. We got a <laughs> pretty crazy case, man. Yeah, yeah. We're back up in Massachusetts, by the way. We got stuck in the state, didn't we? Yeah, it's a state that I can't pronounce. Yeah, no, who can? I think yeah. they just done that. I think they named it on purpose. So Massachusetts. Just, so just laugh at everybody. Yeah. Just put a bunch of letters in there. Somebody will get it. Yeah. <laughs> no offense, fans in Massachusetts. But uh, we're talking today about Molly and Bish. Like fish, but with a B. With a B, yeah. All right. And just a little bit of background on Molly Bish. She was born on August the 2nd, 1983, and her parents are John Sr. and Maggie Bish. Mm-hmm. And her dad, John, is a, well, he was a probation officer, and her mother was an elementary school teacher. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very cool. And the family moved from Detroit, Michigan to Warren, Massachusetts. Right. And the reason they moved actually was uh, where they were living in Detroit. They had been a... a a kidnapping and a murder on their street. Yeah. And they wanted to 
to find a little bit safer place. And this is where John was from. Uh, his mother lived there, so they actually moved to Massachusetts to be closer to her and just have find a, find a nice small neighborhood to be in that was safe for everybody. Yeah, I don't blame them. No, heck no. But Molly, she was the youngest of three kids. She had a older sister, Heather, and she had a, a brother, John Jr. Mm-hmm. Yep. But Molly, she was known for being outgoing, Dale. Yep. She was, po- so. she was popular and very silly. Yep. Highly athletic. Yeah, very athletic. She played uh, three sports. Yeah. And she actually started the so- the girls' soccer team there at her school. Mm-hmm. Also uh, excelling in softball and basketball. Yeah. And this is where she was also an honor student. Yeah. Pull that off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and she had recently begun uh, dating one of her classmates. Hmm. With uh, she went to the prom with too. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, but she dated another boy, and uh, he was older, but he had graduated and went off to college, and they had broken up. So she had started dating another guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, but, you know, it's kind of hard to do that long, long distance stuff. It is, and you know, I get it. But now Molly, she had a dream of one day of working with some children. Yeah, that she was her. Loved them children. She did, because uh, her older sister Heather, she went off to college and. Uh, she had gotten pregnant and had a little girl, and Molly, she just took up with this, this little girl. Right. Her niece, yeah. Michaela. Yeah. But now, in the summer of 2000, Molly had gotten a job as a lifeguard at Cummings Pond. Now, this pond is a, a man-made pond, but if you look at it on Google Earth, it looks like a lake to me. Pretty damn big, yeah. To me, you know, ponds look a little small thing out here in the woods or something, you know. Yeah. Like little ponds very small or fishing pond around here anyway but yeah it's a pretty nice size lake i thought yeah you could put a jet ski out there with no, no problem at all oh yeah there would be people fishing on this pond and i guess they would get their maybe their small boats out there too but they had a little small area for swimming yeah, it was like a little beach here yeah like a little beach somewhere mm-hmm. a swimming area had the buoys we you know put out where a little swimming area but this is where the kids would go this was just a couple miles from our home too yeah but like we said she'd gotten a job as a lifeguard there because her older brother, John, had once been the lifeguard there. Yeah, like the past uh, three years previous. Yeah. So he handed the job down to her. Right. And he had taught her how to uh, work the pond, to clean the beach area, to, um, I guess, check for snakes is what I've read. and mm-hmm. Got it all set up. Had to get everything set up, the, the lifeguard kit and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, the lifeguard, the first aid kit. And it was also the job of the lifeguard to go by the police station every morning to pick up the, the walkie-talkie. Yeah, two-way radio Yeah, for well, fancy people. Yeah, so it, <laughs> I guess to call in any emergencies or anything like that. Right, well, they didn't have no cell phone or nothing, so, you know. Yeah. So and that, it, that was her communication in case something would happen. And it was also the job of her to call the police station every morning when she arrived at the pond. Right, check in. Check in, yes. Now, we're moving up to June the 27th of the year 2000. This is around 9 a.m. And Molly and her mom, they had found out that one of Molly's soccer teammates had been hit by a car. While, yeah, she was riding a bicycle. Yeah. yeah, and she'd been hurt pretty bad and it was in ICU. Yeah, that's not good. No, but Molly was pretty upset on this right but it was too late to call in for work and plus they were having some swimming lessons and stuff and she just uh, made the, the big decision to go ahead and go to work being it was only her eighth day on the job yeah and that's that's pretty uh, respectful especially she's only 16 yeah and they said she was very um had a good work ethic yeah yeah that was the 
what I'd read. She was, took her job serious anyway. That's very tremendous. Yeah. At a young age. So at about 9.50 that morning, Molly and her mom, they stopped at a local convenience store to grab some bottles of water mm-hmm. that Molly was going to need that day. And uh, Molly was also captured on surveillance footage that day to show that she was there at that uh, right. convenience store. We'll talk about that a little bit later, too. Right. And then after they made this purchase at the store, they drove to the police station, like we said, to pick up the required two-way radio. Now, Molly and her mom, they arrived at the pond at 10 a.m., and minutes later, the first swimmers of the day got there. Mm-hmm. So they were ready to go swimming. Now, as the parents started getting there with their kids, one of the parents got there, and they noticed that Molly wasn't in her station. They had a, a chair there. It was a lifeguard chair. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't a, like a, a lifeguard tower that you'd see at a beach. It was pretty much just a, like a, a yard chair or a lawn chair sitting out there next to the, the beach. Yeah, like a little metal frame chair with like the weaved, I guess what you call it, nylon maybe, yeah. mesh, mesh looking stuff in it. So it's yeah. just a small chair, just a regular old chair sitting there. But this where the usually the lifeguards sit with all, of her stu- all their stuff and the the walkie-talkie, and they kept all their stuff they needed for the day. Right. Yeah, like her whistle and everything. But when the mother got there, you know, she like I said, she noticed that Molly wasn't there, and she noticed that uh, the lifeguard whistle was there and her sandals. Yeah. And the first aid kit and something else, her water bottle. Yeah, and the first aid kit was open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they just assumed that since Molly was, you know, 16 years old at this time, they just assumed that she just left. Either that or she was gone somewhere. But the, the mother, she assumed a position of lifeguard to hang out for a while because somebody needed to be there. But I think after an hour, she's like, mm, what's going on here? Yeah, I got it. Yeah, she's going to have to leave too. Right. They informed Molly's boss of her absence. Right. And this was about 11.44 a.m. Molly's boss, uh, via the two-way radio, reported to police that Molly had gone missing. Yeah, he drove up and said, hmm, wonder what's going on, seeing all her stuff there. It was kind of weird. You know, it's kind of weird that, you know, you'd pull up and see all that stuff because you know she had been there. It's not like she just ditched work, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but the Warren Police Department didn't take it serious. Mm -mm. They just assumed she just ditched work to go hang out with some friends. Right. Which you'd assume, you know, most 16-year-olds wouldn't, would do stuff like it. Or just go off, run off in the woods or do whatever. They just assumed she just left. Right. And it was about 1 p.m. And this is when Molly hadn't returned to her station. Hmm. Uh, the police notified her parents. Right. I wonder if, if they just called her parents to see, you know, is she with you, what's going on or anything. Or or why the boss didn't call her parents right off the bat. I don't know. It's kind of odd, isn't it? Yeah. But uh, Maggie, her mom said that her daughter had been dropped off at work earlier that day. Right, and she she should be there, right? Yeah. Now, when Maggie hung up with the police, she called Heather. This was Molly's older sister Mm -hmm. and told her about what was going on, that Molly wasn't at work. And Heather agreed with her mom that something's got to be wrong. Yeah. So they were going to meet at the police station. But uh, on the way there, they actually saw each other and they flagged each other down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, she just lived right down the street. Yeah, that's true. And this when they were told that there was nothing to be concerned about. Yeah. And according to the authorities, Molly was probably upset about her friend being hurt that was in that wreck and had gone to blow off some steam. Mm. That's what everybody, the, the authorities were the, assuming. The yeah. police were thinking, yeah. Now, Maggie and Heather, they set to work on looking for what happened to Molly. Right. And they checked to see if anyone had visited the, her friend at the hospital. Yeah, they called to see if she'd been over there, what's going on. Nope, nothing. Called the boyfriend's house. He hadn't seen her. 
and hadn't heard from her all day, actually. Yeah. And the police, they still weren't concerned. Mm-mm. Boyfriend wasn't really concerned either. No. It's kind of odd to me, though, why nobody was like, mm, oh, well. Especially when she was known to not be like that. Nope. But uh, he did show up at the pond about two hours later mm. to help see what was going on. And when they got there, they noticed that her shoes were there next to the chair. Mm. And they realized, well, Heather, the older sister, realized that Molly wouldn't go anywhere without her shoes. Right. Well, if it was off the beach anyway. Yeah. Because uh, they reported that they didn't, well, Molly didn't like the way the ground fell on her feet. Yeah, she had a, a thing about that. Yeah. Especially if it was something was going to squish up between her toes. It just, yeah. She didn't like that at all. No. Except she was in the sand or something. That's cold. Right, yeah. Beach is different. Yeah. But anytime else, she would have her shoes on. Right. But her shoes were left there beside her chair. Right. And after talking more with the family, the police officers, they began to think that they were onto something. And they called in the state police to help. Well, something was way over their head. You know, like we said, this is a small community. And they hadn't, they hadn't had anything like this. Right. So they was like, mm, we don't even really know how to handle this missing person case. So we need to call somebody with experience. Which, give them props for that. You know, instead of like, out there going, now we got this, we can do it. They're like, mm, no, nah, we better call in somebody who knows what the hell they're doing. Now, when the state police got there, they thought that maybe Molly had gotten in the pond and drowned. Hmm. That's what they were saying. Right. And this... Uh, theory it's it upset uh molly's brother john yeah family said i don't know how it happened Mm-mm. and he actually ran into the water and started searching for his sister because mm-hmm. I mean, he was an excellent swimmer they said he actually went every day to go swimming there yeah but they pulled him out well he swam and searched that pond until the, the police actually made him get out yeah and actually had to pull him out by you know the authorities went there and pulled him out and so the dive team and boats could get in there and search yeah but after several hours they found nothing and they started searching along the woods, and the search was called off until the next morning. Mm. Now, at 6 a.m. on June the 28th. Which is the next day. Yeah, law enforcement deployed all their units, including a helicopter with infrared imaging and a mounted unit, as well as townspeople initiated their own search parties and businesses. They printed missing flyers. You know, if they had a helicopter with infrared imaging, why the hell wouldn't they keep doing that at night? That same night instead of waiting until 6 o'clock next morning. I don't know. Maybe they couldn't get it in there that time. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But it would make a lot of sense. But like I said, they started po- posting missing person flyers on storefronts. Right. Now, police, they began to look at a path that led from the beach at Coleman's Pond to a nearby cemetery. Because they thought um, if someone had abducted Molly, they could have uh, exited this area through this path. Right. And it's kind of odd. I mean, that sounds weird, but what it is, it, this pond is actually in the middle of a bunch of woods or high growth. And there's lots of trails, like uh, uh, hiking trails and walking trails, and maybe even some for like four-wheelers and stuff. And then there's a path. And then there's a cemetery on the other side of the woods, so there's a a, a path that connects them. Yeah. So it's not like the cemetery was out here on the side of the, of the lake. Yeah, that's right. Right. And they started investigating this, and they speculated that someone could have faked an injury and abducted Molly, and because that's why they found the well, they first, found the first kit. kit was open laying there. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense if someone would have come up, especially if they, you know, they came there early. Nobody was there, seen her there, and then walk up and then fake an injury. And while she's grabbing the first aid kit or turning her head or whatever, they could have done whatever. Because this is when Molly's mom Maggie remembers seeing a suspicious-looking man at the pond. The day before she disappeared. Right. Yeah. Now, according to Maggie, that morning has started out like any other. 
But when she and Molly arrived at the pond, they noticed a white vehicle that was in the parking lot. Right, and it weirded Maggie out. It weirded her out pretty good. And they were, this man in the car was watching them. Yeah. And he was watching Molly, too. Yeah, well, Maggie was watching her daughter. She looked up and seen this dude was watching her daughter, too. So he's like, wait a damn minute. And he was just glaring at him. Right. But Maggie decided to stay with Molly while she organized the beach area and got everything ready for the day before mm-hmm. the swimmers got there. Right. And she stayed down there for a while. And then when she decided to leave, the man was still up there in the parking lot. Right. So she didn't leave. No. Because this dude was giving her a bad, bad feeling. Yeah, he was sitting there smoking cigarettes. Yeah, which is odd to her why he's sitting here in the damn parking lot smoking cigarettes. And when asked for this description, Dale, Maggie described him as about 50 years old with salt and pepper hair. He had dark eyes, a mustache, and had been smoking cigarettes, like we said. Mm -hmm. And she just sat there in her car acting like she was doing something. She wasn't going to leave until he left. But Maggie, she worked with an artist, a a sketch artist, to make a composite sketch of this unknown man. And when shown the image, John Jr., Maggie's brother, didn't recognize him. At all? No, as a regular at the pond. Right. Because he'd been there working there for three years, and he would see everybody coming and going. Yeah. Anybody who was a regular, he probably knew. Oh, exactly. And upon learning about the encounter, the police, they set up a roadblock and asked the townspeople about the vehicle. And nobody knew anything. It was a white vehicle, right? It was a white vehicle. White sedan. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the district attorney's office, they ordered a search of 125 vehicles from the area. Right. She didn't know what type it was. She just knew it was a white sedan. Yeah. But they... Couldn't determine the type of vehicle Maggie had seen. Right. And it didn't result in any kind of leads You know, it's kind of odd. You know, she was that detailed on what he looked like, but didn't remember what a car looked like. Yeah. You know. And from this uh, composite sketch, there were thousands of tips that were called in from all across the United States regarding the man, and but they didn't result in anything at all, Dale. And when the police returned to Cummins Pond, they found the scene had been contaminated. Oh, God. You know what? Yeah. Well, nobody thought anything. I mean, well, all yeah. these people were coming, going swimming, and a lot of them, the woman's been in, sitting in her chair. I mean, everything. Yeah, because you don't think anything is a crime scene. No, definitely not. Mm-hmm. Not, not, not in this uh, neighborhood. Yeah. There were footprints everywhere, fingerprints. They found a ton of ton of used cigarettes, and they weren't able to find any kind of evidence at all. Right. That's what I was going to say. I wonder if they looked for cigarette butts to do DNA, but by this time, everything been corrupted. Yeah, I just wonder if they looked for any cigarette butts outside to where that car had been sitting. That's what I meant, you know. Yeah. Now, since they didn't have any evidence to work on, the police began to think up theories about what could have happened to Molly. One was that she voluntarily left because there weren't any reported sightings across the country. But her family, they believed that she wouldn't have left her job without telling them. No, they knew her too good. Yeah. And another was that she knew her attacker and her boss, he had an alibi. But her boyfriend didn't have an alibi. He was right. just at home asleep. Yeah. Yeah. But he passed the polygraph, did Yeah, the boyfriend did pass the polygraph. Damn by good. Yeah. I'd be nervous as I'd hell. be scared to death. <laughs> but they were hoping to uncover some new leads, and investigators looked into area sex offenders. Mm-hmm. And they started checking for alibis that proved to be difficult. And many were not gainfully employed. Right. And several were called in for polygraphs, and... Some of them showed signs of deception. Oh, I'm sure what it did. I mean, if you're already a sex offender, now they're calling you in for this, you'd be scared to damn death whether you did anything or not. Oh, I'd be, I couldn't pass one. I'd be scared to death. Yeah. Detectives also ran through John Sr. This was Molly's dad, some of his old cases. Like I said, he was a probation officer. Right, I thought about this too. In case someone could have had 
taken Molly as an act of revenge or something. Right. But most of these uh, people that, you know, he was a probie officer too, they just had kind words to say about him. Right. He was a real cool guy. Yeah. All right. Now, in May of 2003, Dale, two unrelated tips came in saying Molly had been sighted in Miami, Florida. And investigators were prepared to make a trip down to Florida to follow up on it. And on May the 16th, they received a tip from a retired cop who believed the missing girl's disappearance was related to a 1993 abduction and murder of another young girl. Her name was Holly Perinian. Hmm. Now, in 1993, Holly and her brother were visiting with their grandma. This was in Sturbridge, Massachusetts. While out with her brother, she disappeared and only her shoe was found. Yeah, they had walked up to some neighbor's house who had some puppies to go see the puppies. And then uh, somehow or another they got uh, separated. And when, they, when uh, they returned, only the brother came back. Yeah. And then when everybody went back looking for her, all they could find was her shoe on the side of the road. Man. Yeah. And during this investigation into Holly's disappearance, Molly and her family, they were at uh, church one Sunday morning. And the congregation had asked them to write, I guess, letters to the family. Right. To tell them, you know, they, they were in their prayers and they'd be thinking about them and how they, you know, just give them some well wishes. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So uh, Molly, she took it upon herself to write a letter to Holly's family. Yeah. I know we got Holly and Molly yeah. here, but. She uh, you know, wrote a letter and saying she hoped that uh, Holly would soon be returned home safe. Yeah. Yeah, so Molly at the time was about 10 years old when she wrote this letter. Mm. So that's pretty ironic. Very. Yeah. But Holly's remains would later be found by hunters in the woods near where she went missing, mm. and her killer was never identified. And still hadn't, as we know. No. But now, given both these girls were blonde and blue-eyed and taken from isolated areas and were in close proximity to each other, the investigators looked into the possibility that the same person who murdered Holly, was responsible for Molly's disappearance. Very possible. And hunters from the local area were interviewed, with one saying he had seen something kind of suspicious uh, months earlier, but at the time hadn't thought anything of it. Right. And going off this hunter's tip, the police went into a wooded area. This is near Palmer, Massachusetts. And they discovered a piece of cloth that appeared to be part of a blue bathing suit. Hmm. And it was the same color as the one Molly had been wearing when she disappeared. And it was sent away and had tests done on it. I think they they actually broke it into two pieces and sent it to two different labs. They did, yeah. To have a test done on it. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, that hunter had mentioned it to that detective who had covered uh, Holly's case. And when he heard that, he had him take it take him to see where it was yes and then there was like way out in the woods in a place called uh whiskey hill and said it was really where it is is basically the only place that a hunter would see it because it was so desolate and uh i think his name was uh tim mcgowan mcgowan yeah something yeah. like that yeah so and when they when he took him out there he actually saw this and then he contacted police and then they collected it and sent it off yes and upon discovering this bathing suit a massive search was done of the area yeah and they we're covering 500 acres. Good Lord. And it was the largest search in Massachusetts history. Yep. And six days into it, DNA testing proved that the suit belonged to Molly. Right. It was her. Yeah. 
Now, in June of 2003, police searching Whiskey Hill in Palmer, Massachusetts, they discovered a human bone that belonged to someone aged 14 to 20. Mm. And after searching, a total of 26 more bones were discovered. And DNA testing confirmed them to be Molly's. Hmm. But the search brought no evidence that would point investigators to the killer or her cause of death. Now, on August the 2nd, 2003, uh, Molly was laid to rest on what would have been her 20th birthday, Dale. Mm. How ironic is that? Uh, I would have... Yeah. It said that... um, those 26 bones were put into a child's casket and along with some letters from her friends and a prom dress yeah and a tigger stuffed animal yeah and then that casket was put into a bigger casket yeah but hmm. she was laid to rest man but now after finding molly you know they oh. before you take off they had to wait a while though when they first found him you know they had made them wait because they kept looking to see if what they could what all they could find yeah so even though they discovered and they knew you know what had happened well where they knew that she was gone they kept it still had to sit there and wait for all this to do and then they basically told them you know you don't need to cremate the, the remains in case something come up later where they needed to, to have something to test by yeah so it's, some, it's pretty sad yeah it is but now after finding Molly, police believe their suspect to be a white male between the ages of 18 and 50. Wow. Mm, really? Who was uh, known to the area through either hunting or fishing. Went to that part makes sense, yeah. being where it was found. And he was most likely, he had a history of violence against women. Now in 2005, there was a Connecticut resident was charged with attempted kidnapping in Connecticut. And for a time, they were briefly under investigation in connection to Molly's case. Mm-hmm. In order to bring in new leads, the Bish family hired a private investigator. His name was Tom Shamshack. Shamshack. Yeah. All right, Dale. Now, over the years, there have been um, three men investigators have looked at. Yeah, we knew there's been a ton of them, but three really stand out. Yeah. But nobody's ever been arrested. No, nobody's been arrested. They've, they've had many suspects. Lots of, uh, what do you call them? People of uh, interest. Yes. Persons of interest. That's what I'm looking for. And just before the 21st anniversary of Molly's disappearance from there at uh, Coleman's Pond, a man by the name of Frank Sumner Sr. Now, Sumner, um, who was previously convicted of aggravated rape and kidnapping in the 1980s, and after a trial in 1982, he was sentenced to concurrent terms of 15 to 18 years on the rape charge and nine to ten years on the kidnapping charge, mm. and with a driving record that indicated a speeding violation in 1998. Right. And it appeared that Sumner served 15 to 16 years of that sentence. And it also said that Sumner also known to he was known to operate an auto repair shop near there. And from about 2009 to 2012, he operated Elite Auto. This was at 217 Bear Paxton Road there in Rutland. And people who worked with Summer in the auto industry remembered him as hot-headed, hmm. but were surprised to hear that he was linked to Molly's abduction and the killing, in addition to the rape and kidnapping charge. And Sumner's record shows the criminal and civil cases for which Sumner was a defendant or plaintiff, including small claims cases and uh, some money actions, too. Right. Yeah. Well, it wasn't... Uh... The rape charges and stuff, or the stuff he was convicted of, was he was uh, 
um, assaulting his girlfriend's daughter. Yeah. Of over a hundred times. Yes. Yes. Even though he had a restraining order, he still showed up even one time in front of the cops, even telling the little girl that he loved her. Yeah. So he was kind of obsessed with this. And also, when you said, you know, he had the, the auto service, he would, you know, he had taken a, a white car that uh, he had been working on for a spin, is what he told uh, someone, and uh, told him that he had actually had been over to Warren. And then uh, said it was kind of odd that uh, that he'd do this because he really didn't have a license to be driving and going out that far. And then when this, the news came out, he went home and shaved off his mustache, mm-hmm. which was weird. Yeah, very weird. Especially when you look at the, the sketch that Maggie gave him. Yeah. And yeah, we're going to post pictures of this sketch, too. Yeah. The guy, he also liked to talk about true crime, too, to his girlfriends. Yeah. Yeah. So he always talking stuff, and then he would... uh. You know, always going and watching court TV and going over to all these cases and watching a lot of them over and over. And then he was even known to uh, cut out really weird, you know, crime stuff out of newspapers and leave the articles laying around and tell her that's how he's going to kill her and making all this stuff up. And and then when this happened, uh, she wanted to talk to him about the Bish case, and he didn't want to have nothing to do with it. Wow. Didn't even want to talk about it. Didn't want to discuss it. Basically said, well, you know, sometimes there's just not any evidence. But he didn't want to talk about it. Wow. So that's just creepy as hell. Mm-hmm. And there was another suspect. His name was Gerald Bastatoni, and he was a convicted child rapist. And investigators had eyed him for a while, as far back as 2011, in connection with Molly Bish and uh, Holly Peranian. Mm. And in August of 2011, Bastatoni was found guilty by a jury on four counts of rape and abuse of a child. And the crimes happened... 20 years prior and the jury acquitted Bastatoni of two counts of rape and child abuse an investigator said that the rape survivor had ties to Sturbridge and lived in Warren Massachusetts that was close to Cummins Pond and a lot of information links him to both areas and he is a convicted rapist of a young girl with similar features to Holly and Molly this is what investigator Daniel Malley said in 2011 and also, uh, Bastatoni apparently attempted suicide in prison in 2011. And this was following some news reports about the investigator's work, which was also several months after his conviction. Yeah, he had already, he was a suspect. That's when he tried to kill himself. Exactly. That's not weird at all. But Bastatoni was in custody at Lemuel Shattuck Hospital when he died in, on November 11, 2014. Hmm. This is uh, according to the Massachusetts Department of Corrections. And there's another suspect that we're going to talk about uh, a little bit more his name is rodney stanger mm-hmm. now this cat uh some have questioned whether rodney is a former you know he's a former massachusetts resident yep. he, he could have been involved with this um, stanger used to fish and hunt in the warren area right there at whiskey hill yeah he mm-hmm. also lived in the south bridge area at the time of molly's abduction yeah he lived three tenths of a mile away from the YMCA, where she actually got her lifeguard certificate. Yeah. And uh, while she was going there to class, her dad, was work- he worked nearby. And he would uh, drop her off for classes and pick her up. And some days she would be early getting out, or some days he'd be working late. And she would uh, walk down to a little coffee shop and wait on him to come pick her up. And a lot of people are saying maybe this guy saw her there and chatted her up. Mm-hmm. It's very possible. Yep. He lived that close, you know. So, and uh, he didn't have a white car, but his brother did. 
That's right. Right. Now, in 2009, uh, Stanger was found competent to stand trial in the death of the girlfriend he had, Crystal Morrison. Ooh. And police interviewed Stanger the year prior following a tip, and the spokesman would not comment further. And it appears that Stanger left Southbridge about a year after Molly disappeared. Yeah, him and his brother left at the same time. Mm-hmm. Moved to Florida. Yeah. That's not weird at all. No. And speaking of uh, killing his girlfriend, it, it was, uh, I don't really know what all the, the details are, but I know she was stabbed over 39 times with almost a total decapitation. Yes. So it was uh, pretty rough. Mm-hmm. It was also said that uh, this Crystal Morrison, who had, hadn't uh, spoken to her sister in over 20 years, and I'm not sure what the reasons were for that, but she had uh, called her sister and told her she thought she was going to be murdered by this guy. And, uh, and then kind of went into some other weird stuff, and then she kept talking about Bonnie's bird. And uh, she said, well, what about the bird? And he said, well, you know the bird. What's the bird's name? And she said, well, I just told you yesterday what the bird's name is. Why would you be asking me again? She goes, just, what's the bird's name? And she said, the bird's name is Molly. And she goes, exactly. And she goes, what? And then it kind of hit her. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, no. She goes, yep. And so it was kind of odd because the day before when she had called her, she had asked for the phone numbers for uh, um, the FBI and the Massachusetts State Police. And both of them living in Florida. She said, you don't need the Florida police? She goes, no, I need Massachusetts. We want them to, well, I want them to come here and talk to us about some murders. And then with that, on top of the thing about the bird, man, that was really weird. And I was just, I don't know, it's kind of blowed my mind. And then she was actually killed later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's very ironic, dude. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. I mean, they got the white car. He hunted in the woods right there. He lived near there. It was just plenty of opportunity for this guy to be the, be the man. Mm-hmm. And the, the bad part is, is like all three of these dudes kind of look like the drawing. They do. Some more than others, but they're all similar. You can make a case for either one of them. Well, when they went to this trailer to look for his stuff, they found his. They found a, an ID of his. They said it, it was a fishing license. I've heard or, fishing license or a firearm ID or firearm license or whatever, but whatever. And no matter what it is, they found one. Man, he had darker hair back then, and right. he looked just like the composite. Yeah, said it, her her words were, "It looks like he could have sit for a drawing or sit for the fo- the, the photo of the drawing." Mm-hmm. It was that close. And he said also they found in in the trailer there uh, some things that would belong to little girls. Yeah, like some hair, some hair ties and stuff. Yeah, you know, hair bows and barrettes and things like that. And said, this is uh, old Bonnie going down there looking through the stuff after her sister was murdered mm-hmm. to the, get her stuff. And he found out and said it was all, it all looked like it was for a younger girl than her sister. So it was just kind of weird to her that he would have a box full of these hair things and stuff like that for young girls. Yeah. But, um, he claims to know nothing about Molly's disappearance. Mm-hmm. And even his attorney says uh, he's uh, innocent to proven guilty. Yeah, but when the investigators went in there to talk to him about it and showed her the picture, he wouldn't even look at it. He glanced at it and pushed it back to him. He wouldn't look at it. Didn't mm-hmm. want to talk about it. Yeah, that's not weird at all there either. No, not at all. Mm-mm. All right, now, Dale, in 2013, there was a new racetrack. Uh, it's like a motorsports complex that was being developed in this area near where Molly's remains were found. Right. So the investigators, they came in and they educated the construction crew on what to look for. Right. I think it was pretty cool of the crew to actually get in there and pay attention and, you know, really be respectful of what they're looking for. Because this was a heavily dense wooded area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they informed the crew on what Molly had been wearing and what they might find as far as human remains go. Now, they even brought cadaver dogs in 
to see if there were any scents that were released into the air. Right. Yeah. And in 2014, there was a partially buried bag that was found underneath a log in the woods near this uh, sportsman's club in Palmer uh, by a private investigator. Mm-hmm. And the area was across the road from where Molly's remains were found. And inside the bag were a pair of plaid boxer shorts that were similar to the ones Molly had been wearing the day she went missing. Right. They went back and looked at that video that you were talking about earlier at the, at the convenience store and seen it was exactly the, the pair that she had on. Yeah. Right. And later that year, the judge dismissed a lawsuit brought forward by a former police officer against the Worcester District Attorney's Office who said that he deserved a $100,000 reward for leading investigators to the remnants of Molly's bathing suit back in 2003. Hmm. And he claimed to have learned about the bathing suit from a hunter who saw it, and his lawyer said some posters related to the case had indicated the reward money would be paid for information leading to Molly. Yeah. Hmm. But according to the district attorney, the posters were put up by an independent foundation and law enforcement made it clear that the reward was for information leading to an arrest Working. and conviction. Yeah. Yeah, but not to Molly. Right. But now, in 2014, the Bish family, they held a campaign called Just One Piece. Yeah, they named it that because he's just saying basically it could just take one more piece to, to crack this case. Yeah. You know. Now, the family eventually hired a new private investigator. Her name was Sarah Stein who told them the authorities would be searching for the car Molly's killer could have been driving. Hmm. And she received a tip that revealed a car was was similar to the one Maggie had seen the day that she had dropped um, Molly off at the pond. Right. And it was buried in a former campground site in the Brookfield area. That's, hey, a, that's not a, odd. A car it? buried, yeah. And investigators used ground-penetrating radar to search for the car and found compelling anomalies at multiple areas of interest that led them to search the campground again a few days later. And this had led Sarah to believe something was buried in that area. Well, hell, if it was a car, wouldn't you think you'd know it? You'd think, yeah. And in 2017, volunteers went to the campground to search for the suspected car. While state troopers were present, it was not considered an official part of uh, all-volunteer effort. Right. But according to Heather, Molly's sister... A man who physically resembles the composite sketch still lives in the area. He is a hunter and a fisherman and has access to the campground through friendship with the property owner. Right. And they also have the heavy equipment needed to bury a car was there, also available to him at this campground. Yes. That's crazy, man. Mm-hmm. But uh, since Molly's murder, Heather, she has taken on the responsibility of maintaining uh, – Molly's Foundation. It's the Molly Bish Foundation. And, man, they um, advocate for missing people. They set up these kits for identification mm-hmm. to help. Uh, we said that come a week when uh, they were wanting a, a great photo, like a head and shoulders photo, and realized they didn't really have what they needed. Yeah. And she said that uh, actually one in six kids are recovered or found, you know, and they are found because they have a photo. Right. Yeah. So that was their initiative to get that going. Yep. His family's awesome, man. Maggie and John Sr. set up the Molly Beach Foundation. All kind of stuff. Yeah, and like I said, it's uh, dedicated to improving safety and awareness for all kids. Yep. Mm -hmm. And uh, Maggie got the Amber Alert pushed into uh, Massachusetts here. Yeah. 
That's awesome, too. Yeah. And Molly's case has been profiled on shows such as Disappeared, America's Most Wanted, Unsolved Mysteries, and 48 Hours. Right. So it's a big case in Massachusetts. It's a big case and nothing's ever been ever found. No. Nobody's ever been arrested. Just plenty of suspects and a lot of mystery. No, no. And still open today. Yep. And in October of 2018, the guy that Molly was dating, his actually his name was Stephen Lucas. Hmm. Uh, he died in a car crash Man. in 2018. What yeah. a tragedy here. I know. Uh, John Jr., this is Molly's brother. Uh, since then, he has become a EMT in memory of his sister. Wow. He also cites his parents' humanitarian work as an inspiration to him. Right, yeah, you know, and her her dad and her mom really worked hard to do a lot of stuff, and I think, uh, according to Heather, her dad just put all this on him. You know, I guess being the dad of the family, it's his job to protect everybody, and he was just let it eat him up a good bit, you know, and then said that he had had a stroke. I think that was in 2007 when he had a stroke. And then uh, after that's when she kind of took over all this, but she said really, uh, even though it was a stroke, and it was a pretty bad stroke, that it really was a blessing kind of to him because he could let some of that go he wasn't just beating himself up so bad over it. you know he could be able to to be be a dad and be a grandfather to her kids and stuff and she took over all this this other work yeah but police believe that molly bish was a victim of a homicide well you think yeah pitiful man it's just sad it really is this girl had so much to give and so smart and a beautiful young girl yeah highly athletic and very smart i mm-hmm. mean you do all those three, four sports and to be a lifeguard and also make an honor roll. I mean, she's smart. Yep. But she was also, her remains were also uh, laid to rest on her birthday. Yeah. It's, that gets me every time you say it. Yeah. I'm thinking, man, I would have like, you know, we move at a different day. Yeah. You know, in this case, man, there is so much irony. Yeah, all over. And Molly writing the letter to Holly's family. Right. Yeah. And then this uh, detective, private investigator, investigating Holly's case, gets involved with Molly's case. Yeah. It's just a lot of irony. Yeah, it's a lot of intertwined stuff. It is. Still ended up being a sad story. But this is still unsolved to this day. It is. And if anybody has any information regarding this case, they are asked to contact the Massachusetts State Police at phone number... Area code 508-453-7575. Or you can contact your local Crime Stoppers or you can contact us. Mm-hmm. Either one you want to do. But anyway, Dale, that is the case of Molly Bish. Man. Yeah. I hope they can find some peace one day. Yeah. Pretty, pretty sad. I think what, a couple of them suspects are already passed away. Yeah, the only one living is that Rodney Stanger. And I think he is uh, eligible for rowing. 20, uh, 2031, I think. Mm. Yeah. I hope we don't get it. Nope. I hope we don't either. I hope something's found. And uh, the, also, the Bish family, they're pushing legislative uh, reform, and they've got a bill proposed to have uh, familial DNA to be used in connection to some of these cases yep. with uh, CODIS. Yeah. They're, they're pushing that really hard. Well, I hope you get it. So if anybody in the Massachusetts area that's eligible, eligible to vote, vote for that bill mm-hmm. to have familial DNA be Call used. Call legislator. Yes. And that could be, that could have some leaps and strides on this case yeah. if it's passed, passed into law. Yep. All right, Dale, we're going to get out of here, bud. Okay, man, let's go. We want everyone to be safe. Please be careful and always be aware of your surroundings. 
because the next episode could be about you. This is Crack House Chronicles. Chronicles.